welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. This week it's me, Alex, flying solo in the hosting chair, and I had an amazing time with our guest this week, Romil Dave. He holds the Chair of Physics at the School of Physics and Astronomy here at the University of Edinburgh, but there's so much more to learn about him. Romil has travelled the world and shares his insights about working at different academic institutions, but highlights that happiness is what really counts. He gives us a glimpse into the universe of modelling. Does one university star system look like another? It's time to find out the latest on the cosmic web. So get ready as we explore the cosmos, theoretically anyway. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. My name is Ramil Dave. I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh in the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and I am a computational astrophysicist. Uh, well, we'll talk more about what I do, but basically I work at the Royal Observatory up on the hills. I'm looking out of my office over Arthur's seat and the and the castle. So it's very nice up here. Uh, so I, I, the only bad part is having to get up that hill every day. But other than that, it's beautiful. I've been here about five years. I was an, in Cape Town before that as a national research chair in cosmology. And before that, I was a professor at the University of Arizona in the beautiful Sonoran Desert where... I was there for about almost 10 years, I guess. I was born in California and grew up mostly in the U.S., a couple of years in India, which is where my family is from originally. Yeah, that's that's me pretty much. Well, that's already a really interesting journey around the world as you've gone through. And uh, going back to your time in South Africa, actually, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that uh, you're listed as an extraordinary professor. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, uh, the, the bigger the title, the less the pay. Oh, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's how it works. So that's, that's an honorary position that I still have wow. after leaving there. So I'm very, still very involved with a lot of stuff going on in South Africa. It's certainly not like I've cut ties with those people at all. And it's great because South Africa is one of the real growing centers for international astronomical facilities. And so it's it's it was great to be part of that while I, while I was there. And now that I've moved on, I'm still trying to do my part to help you know, keep things going in the right direction and, and make sure they have uh, access to sort of the best sort of things uh, to be part of the international astronomical community. That's awesome. So you must have experienced lots of different research environments at these different universities. What are the different merits that you found each one has? Well, it certainly was a big transition going from University of Arizona to University of the Western Cape. So the University of the Western Cape in, in South Africa was a historically colored teaching college. It was not one of the white universities, you know, that was well-funded. And so they they were very keen, of course, on trying to support research, but their, their funding, their things are, are very limited. Nonetheless, they were super supportive, you know, but they were not used to dealing with international level research at all. Even even sort of grants were sort of like, what is this concept exactly? So it, it was a real challenge. I had some very supportive people down there and, you know, we had a, a department chair who uh, was the head of the institute at Portsmouth for many years, South African fellow who went back down there 
to sort of head up this group and try to build it. He's sort of like one of those people that that like you tell him what the problem is and he goes and yells at people oh, and no. figures it out <laughs> in a very nice South African way. But nonetheless, you, you know how that works. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so he was great, right? He, he really smoothed a lot of things over. But uh, but yeah, it's it's quite different atmosphere down there. And then again, coming here, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot more like a normal sort of research-oriented uh, place, but it is a different environment. One of the things that I've really tried to do in my career is, is be in places where I like the people, mm. because there are a lot of departments around where it's not a great vibe, and that sucks. I really enjoy the people at Arizona. I enjoy the people in Cape Town. Uh, still got friends down there, and and uh, similarly here, it's a very warm department, a very interactive, friendly department. And not all places are like that, so that's that's great. But yeah, there are there are definitely a lot of things to get used to with UK bureaucracy. <laughs> that's for sure. So going back to your origins in America, you originally studied physics. So had you always had an interest in astronomy, and did that come out of you studying physics? No, I, I could care less about astronomy when I was growing <laughs> up. I, I am not one of those people that's like, oh, I was interested in the sky from each. No, I, I had no <laughs> concern whatsoever with what was up there. Probably because, you know, I grew up as a suburban kid, you know, and light pollution. All that. I, I just never, you know, my dad, like, you know, it, my dad grew up in rural India. And like, even he like found some old pairs of glasses and built a telescope. And he tried to get me interested in this kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I came to astronomy basically from a purely physics point of view. Like, I just mm. enjoyed the questions, you know, and I didn't even realize, you know, I, I wanted to be um, a string theorist is like a lot of, you know, these young impressionable kids do. And so, you know, you think you're going to solve everything, you know, the theory of everything and be the next Einstein or whatever. So, you know, I, I went to Caltech, you know, trying to be Sheldon Cooper or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and I just sort of as soon as I got into grad school, I kind of got disillusioned with the whole uh, enterprise there for various reasons. But I stumbled onto this thing called cosmology, which was great, you know, which was the sort of thing that was like you know, this wide open field of what is the universe going to do? You know, what is it? Where did it come from? Where? How, why does it look the way it does? So these are all like really cool questions to me. So I started getting into it from from that perspective. I, I actually ended up quitting Caltech. I passed my prelims and got my master's, but then I, I moved on because they, at the time, they didn't have a great program in astronomy, uh, at least in terms of cosmology and, and the kind of things I wanted to do. I was also into computer programming, uh, not not so much, but I wasn't like a hacker. I just knew it, <laughs> so <laughs> um, because I, my dad will like taught it to me. So I knew I knew how to program, and I was like, oh, it was really cool that people were doing these simulations of the universe, right? Like, how does that even work, and like, what can you learn from that? And so I, I got kind of excited about this, and then and so I went, to, I transferred to UC Santa Cruz, University of California, Santa Cruz, which at the time had some of the leading people. In fact, really kind of still do have some of the leading people in simulating astrophysical systems, including like the universe. So, so that's, that's kind of how I got into it. But yeah, I really had to start from scratch. So I, I spent two years as a master's and then six years getting my PhD. So a Oof. total of eight years. And then I took a year off in between because honestly, after my Caltech experience, I wasn't sure I even wanted to do academia. So I only applied to like two places and luckily I got into both. But if I hadn't, I would have been like, oh, I'm done. I'm just going to go to Silicon Valley and be, you know, Elon Musk or whatever the heck. You know? <laughs> Make the money. <laughs> so did you, uh, did you also have parents, but like mine at the moment saying like, are you ever going to start a real job? You're, you're 25 now. 
<laughs> yeah. Like, luckily, my, my parents are pretty supportive, but the rest of my family is like, oh, that's cute. Tell <laughs> me how much money you make again. Really? You're smarter than that. Come on. And what does it really mean? <laughs> yeah. And so the work you were doing, as you got into this modeling and simulations, did you start on the same kind of modeling and you've developed it from there? Or have you changed the systems that you're modeling over time? Yeah, it definitely changed. I mean, it's been an amazing journey, really, because it's kind of, you know, I, I suppose this is true in, in a lot of fields, but but certainly in astronomy, I would say there aren't too many areas that have developed more over the last 20 years than these sort of simulations that I do. Uh, and in part, just because the computers are, you know, just getting so much faster every year, right? And thanks to, you know, the internet and all these things, right? People just want bigger and faster computers all the time and we get the benefits of this. <laughs> it's really, I mean, literally the, the simulations I did for my PhD thesis could probably buy a seven, 800 pound uh, workstation and do those. And by, at that time, we ran the biggest simulations in, you know, that had ever been done wow. of, the, of that type, right? And they were run on big, you know, supercomputers in the late nineties. You know, we took national supercomputer time for about eight months to run our simulation. It's just the pace of uh, technology development has been such crazy thing. And that was kind of one of the things that, that got me into this. I was like, I was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe our simulations look like really sucky little toy things. And honestly, like, you know, the community was not very impressed back then with our simulations, right? They were sort of like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> what do you learn from that? You know, uh, <laughs> because we couldn't do anything like, you know, we could only produce like very rudimentary things and we couldn't even produce a galaxy like a Milky Way in our, in our simulations back then. Right. It was like, we didn't know what the right physics was. You know, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence if you can't even produce the very galaxy you live in, right. In, in your galaxy simulation. So it was really, it was really just a completely different game back then. And nowadays it's sort of, you know, we've ran all these incredible things that make these beautiful movies and, and, you know, we produce all these galaxies that look, you know, so much like Real galaxies now and it's just it's just a it's totally different world and you know i think the you know my students and stuff don't even believe like some of the things that you could learn anything from the sort of simulations that we ran back then but uh, but we managed you know we, we learned some that's stuff. amazing so could you give the listeners and myself included a real quick guide to what it is you're simulating and your key questions so i mean the the ultimate problem that we want to solve right is sort of effectively like the story of human beings, right? Where, how did we come to be where we are, right? Now we can trace back with biology, evolution. We can go back many millions, hundred millions of years. Chemists tell us how, you know, earth, the processes that formed life on earth and stuff. But then what about before that, right? What about the sun? Like, where did the sun come from? How did our galaxy come from? Where did, and we have to trace all this back to the big bang. And so my idea was that I want to be able to start at the Big Bang and, you know, put in all the physics that we think we know about the universe into the computer, run it forward in time and produce things like the Milky Ways with, with things like the sun, which, which we can then sort of think about how planets around that form and so on and so forth. So, uh, so that's basically the whole, the whole scope of the problem. And I'm sort of working on the, the very large scale end of it, starting at the Big Bang, how do we produce galaxies like the Milky Way? And how do we, not only that, you know, Milky Way is just one type of galaxy. It's a, you know, we've probably all seen that little, has these little spiral arms and, you know, has a, like a, you know, people draw a galaxy like a little disc and stuff. But in point of fact, galaxies come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes and colors and morphologies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so uh, how do we produce that diversity? 
right? Because if you think of like the Big Bang as this primordial soup of just blah, right? Blah, you know, stuff, right? And somehow <laughs> out of that emerged this beautiful, you know, you see these images from the Hubble Space Telescope or something and the beautiful images of all these galaxies you know, looking all the way back to very early in the universe. And it's just amazing, right? But where did all that come from, right? How do we, how do we get from there to here, right? And, and where we can look out and see that with the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's what we're trying to do on the computer. A small task, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a little thing. <laughs> so when I was reading about your research, there were just some fantastic terms that or things you were saying you're interested in. So obviously you had, as you were talking about your galaxy formation evolution, but the one that really caught my eye was yes, the cosmic right. web. Yes, indeed. <laughs> What is the cosmic, cosmic web? web? <laughs> yes. So this is actually one of the th first things that was learned from simulations. Um, it was actually one of the things that, that kind of put simulations on the map even. So back in the 1980s, astronomers went out and started to map the universe. Now, of course, when you look on the sky, you only see things in two dimensions, right? Uh, so you don't know how far away something is. So basically, they were able to get a distance. So now you can make a 3D map of the universe, right? And the thing that people noticed immediately oh. was that it's not like galaxies are just spread randomly over the sky. Not at all. They like organize themselves into dense areas. And the dense areas are connected with like filaments. And in between the filaments are like sheets oh. of matter. It, it's, it really looks like a web. So I think it was um, Dick Bond, who is one of the, he was the head of the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics for a long time. But uh, he, he invented the term a cosmic web for this distribution of matter. So it was really amazing when when they ran the very first simulations in the 1980s. I mean, this is basically you know when the when the first simu of, of simulations of uh, the universe started. And back then, it was very simple. We, we weren't really looking at galaxies or anything like that. It was just matter, right? Just mass. That's all, right? It was just gravity purely. All we were trying to do is put gravity. It was only one force. Mm -hmm. Nothing like you know all the things that we associate. And even then. The first one of the first things that came out was the cosmic web and so simulations were like look here like we we get the same thing but the great thing about simulations right is that you could figure out where it all came from right because you had the whole story you had the movie effectively not just you know still shots so you we could discover how, where it was that the cosmic web came from and and you know how it originated and uh, essentially you know it turns out to be a pretty simple idea that really had people had already known about probably the the greatest cosmologist of all time uh, in my opinion at least is this guy named uh, Zeldovich and he was a Russian fellow in the 70s going all the way back 60 70 and uh, he was the one who sort of first basically came up with the idea of the cosmic web just right with a pen and paper like he had figured it out and people did, just didn't appreciate what he had what he had done right only later when we were like oh this is what's going on it was like oh that's just like what Zeldovich said, isn't it? <laughs> so, so we even call these sheets, we call them Zeldovich pancakes, right? And, and basically the way they work, right? Imagine you have sort of an ellipsoidal distribution of matter, right? So it's not, not a sphere, but it's sort of elongated and each axis is sort of has a different dimension, right? So it's stretched along one, less stretched along other and like thin. So what Zeldovich discovered is that, ah, okay, what's going to happen to this thing, right? Is that, you know, because gravity is strongest, for things that that basically are, are close by, right? You, you get strong gravity when things are close. So that means that you know you'll have sort of the first thing that'll happen is that the the shortest axis will squeeze down and collapse, and that gives you a, like a pancake, 
And this is what a Zeldovich pancake is. And that's what a sheet is, right? In when we see in the cosmic web. But then the next thing happens is a second axis collapses and you get like a cigar, right? And that's a filament. Oh. And so you get a filament. And then the third thing happens, of course, is that the, the filament collapses down. You get sort of a, a blob, right? And so these, these things, these structures that we see in the cosmic web were nothing but different stages, like different parts of the universe, because they have different amounts of matter and different amounts of gravity. They're just going through this process at different stages. And we see a snapshot of it. You know, it's like looking at a stadium full of people and you see young people, you see old people, you see people in between, right? You see, you see all the stages at once. And that's kind of what we're seeing with this cosmic web. So that, that was actually, you know, in the 1980s and, and early 90s, was like, a, you know, a real win for the cosmological simulation game, right? And uh, it was sort of like, uh, yeah, this, okay, maybe these simulations aren't totally stupid after all. One of the other topics I wanted to pick up on from your interest was dark matter and dark energy. In the universe, uh, we're, we're a big minority, right? We're, we're a minority of stuff, the stuff that we're made of. You're probably told in chemistry class, oh, everything that anything is made of is in the periodic table of elements, right? It's just a bunch of molecules that are just combination of these atoms in the periodic table. Well, according to astronomers, that only is like one sixth of the matter in the universe. In the rest of it, the, the majority is in the stuff that is nothing, that is not in the periodic table at all, right? It's a, it's a completely different beast. And it has mass, but it, it doesn't interact like with bond, with chemical bonds and all these things, because all of these things come from effectively electromagnetic react interactions for, from like positive and negative charges, you know, the protons and the electrons. All of these things have are charged particles. And dark matter is something that does not interact in any way with radiation at all. This is why we call it dark. So it isn't just like a black hole or something like that. It's something that radiation would pass right through it, like light would pass right through it. So we can't see it at all. Oh. So you wonder how the heck do we detect it? Well, <laughs> that's always been a, a real question, but the, what we can detect, right, is the fact that it contains five sixths of the maths in the universe, which means that it really pulls stuff around, right? It really makes, it, re it really has a lot of gravity. So, it, you know, you're feeling yourself getting tugged towards something, you know, that doesn't exist, right? When you look at it, it doesn't, it, it's, there's nothing there, right? And so this is how we sort of detect dark matter in some sense, or at least that was the initial ways to detect dark matter okay. was essentially by looking at the motions of the things we can see and saying, these things are moving around way too fast, given the amount of stuff that we can see, there must be some invisible matter, right? Oh. And um, the person, well, the first person who really came up with this was, was a guy named Fritz Zwicky in, in the 1930s, but uh, no one believed him. He, he was a, quite a character. Um, <laughs> And, uh, uh, but, but later on in the 1960s, a person named Vera Rubin, uh, who, by the way, the next uh, big telescope that the NASA is going to launch, uh, is, is after JWST is, is called Rubin in honor of Vera Rubin. So the Rubin Observatory is the large scale synoptic telescope. So it's, it's a, it's a new telescope that's going to map essentially dark matter, uh, by looking at the visible matter. It's a telescope in Chile. Vera Rubin basically measured this. Uh, but since then, you know, there's been a huge amount of evidence and that's not even the strongest evidence we have, not even nearly the strongest evidence we have for dark matter. So we have to put this in a computer basically when we model our, our universe, right? So we have to put five, six of the mass into the form of dark matter. But that turned out also not to be the whole story because of this dark energy thing, right? And the dark energy thing, oh. um, which is even more mysterious than dark matter at this point. No one knows what the heck is going on. Um, 
but essentially what it does is that it, it, it causes the expansion rate of the universe to accelerate, which is a little weird. If you think about it, you would think that like, if something is, oh. is expanding, like, a, like you think of an explosion, right? It's not quite the same thing, but if you think of an explosion, what happens in an explosion, it sort of starts off fast and then it slows down, slows down, slows down, right? It eventually kind of just stalls out. Right. So that's what everyone thought the universe would do after the big bang. It would just stall out basically, you know, but in point of fact, what we see is that for a while it did that. It slowed down, slowed down. But then, so in the last half of the universe, it's actually been speeding up. Oh. So that was a real head scratcher, right? <laughs> like, because, I mean, presumably, yeah, well, where did that come from, right? I mean, it's like you throw a ball in the air and initially it like slows down a little bit and then suddenly it like shoots up off into the space, right? And you're like, what, what the heck happened there? So immediately what you would think it's something like that would be that, um, you know, it has some other energy. It has some other sort of source of power, right? That would that would do that to it, right? That would send it off into space. And so that's what this dark energy is supposed to be. It's like this mysterious thing that somehow, some way, no one knows how or why or what exactly, but it is this kind of energy which causes this this sort of sudden, well, not sudden, but now sort of gradual acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And it turns out that today, if we measure the amount of sort of mass energy, remember sort of in Einstein world, like E equals MC squared, right? So energy and mass are kind of equivalent. So we can add up the total mass energy in some sense. The energy part, uh, if we sort of turn it into an equivalent mass, uh, corresponds to about 70% of the universe's mass. So it's about more than about two thirds. So it, it turns out to be about Two thirds, you know, seventy percent in dark energy, twenty-five percent in dark matter, and about five percent is everything that we we know of and love in the periodic table. That's mad. Of that, less than sort of one percent is you know the like carbon, and uh, so the only things produced in the Big Bang and most of what's uh, around today is hydrogen and helium in the universe, and like all the stuff like carbon and oxygen, all the stuff was all produced in the inside of stars. Uh, there's that very famous Carl Sagan quote, we are all made of stardust, right? That's what it comes from, right? It's, it's the exploding stars that create all these elements, but it's a very small smattering, right? So if anyone ever tells you you're not the 1%, you tell them, yes, I am. The cosmology <laughs> says we are all the 1%, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is all the things, again, we have to put all of this into a computer to, to figure out, you know, to produce the stuff we see, right? Uh, so it gets quite complicated very quickly. And you were saying before how technology has obviously developed and allowed you to do these new systems. So how often does something new come up like, oh, no, we made a mistake. It's not 70 percent, it's 73 yeah. percent. How often do you have to rerun those things again and again with these new All the time, all the time, right? Um, so <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, we're continually running new simulations. And, you know, I mean, the way the way to, we, we use these simulations, you, you know, I mean, OK, it's great to sort of produce a fake universe and stuff. It's like, Ooh, I'm God, you know, I can produce a fake universe. But really the, the scientific point of it, right. Is the fact that, um, you know, in astronomy, we're, we're very limited, uh, with what we can, uh, the information that we can get about the universe, right. We, in a sense, we don't have any control over our experiment. The experiment is out there in the space and we can't even get there, let alone, you know, do anything like a, you know, in a, like a scientist in a lab would. 
So how do we how do we do the scientific method, right? If you think about it, right? The scientific method is like you form a hypothesis, you run an experiment, you test the hypothesis, you so on and so forth, you form a theory. Well, how do we how do we test a new hypothesis if we can't like do anything, right? We can't tell a star to suddenly do something different than it's been doing, right? So one of the ways we use these simulations is to use these as sort of numerical experiments. So if we can produce something that looks something like the real universe, then we can sort of run experiments on this thing, right? We can change things ourselves. And we can say, ah, what happens if we, you know, put dark energy as 90% instead of 70%? What happens to the universe? And, you know, or, or change dark matter or change the stuff that, you know, that comes out of the, the, that the, in the periodic table or whatever. So we can try all these things on a computer. And so part of the way that we use these, these computer simulations is to run a huge number of them, right? And then say, which one of all of these with all these different parameters, like matches the real universe the best. And then we go, ah, maybe that one is closer to being right than, than all the other ones, right? So in, in part, that's how we came up with these numbers of 70%-ish for dark, dark energy and 25. I mean, that, that was definitely, today, that's basically the leading way that, that people actually constrain these numbers um, is sort of by comparing these simulations um, but yeah, it means we have to run, you know, huge, huge numbers of them. And, oh. and is it like, so if you were going out to buy a new computer, oh, I could get a Windows, I could get a Mac. Are there different kinds of simulations or, or different like structures of simulations that you can choose? And what are the big differences? For sure. Um, so just about every aspect of simulations, you know, has many different ways to do it, right? Many different ways to skin the cat. And um, so, you know, even for solving gravity, you know, you can do it you know, very fast and cheap, but less accurately or, or more, you know, more accurately, but, but slower, so on and so forth. So that's usually the trade-off, but also like, you know, when we want to form a galaxy, right, it gets really hard because, um, you know, we we're modeling this thing on very large scales and huge, huge scales, right? But yet we want to form a tiny, and a star, you know, might seem big to us, but like in the cosmic scheme of things, a star is a tiny, tiny, tiny thing, right? And so we don't have like the dynamic range in our simulation. You know, we don't have enough, effectively enough pixels in our simulation to represent that, right? We, we want galaxies. We want to produce galaxies that are made of stars, that have black holes in them, that look like real galaxies, right? We want, we want our galaxies to look like real galaxies. So how do we do that, right? And so we have to come up with sort of these cheats, well, not cheats, but like, yeah, cheats. I'll just go ahead and say it. I mean, like, it's it's cheat, right? I mean, we, we basically <laughs> find physically motivated ways to paint these kinds of things on. Like, where would a star form? Where would a black hole form? Like, oh, these are the kind of conditions that we see in the real universe that cause stars to form. Okay, let's, if we see those conditions in our simulations, let's let's make some stars there. Okay. And then we have stars in our simulation, right? Or we have black holes, we have dust and we have gas and all these things, right? And so, so that's kind of how we do it. But then, of course, you know, everybody is their own artist and all, we all like to paint things into these simulations in, in our own favorite way, right? And no one knows who's right. I mean, we sort of paint them that kind of look like, that are kind of realistic, but in detail, like they can differ wildly. Like the way I paint black holes into my simulation is very different 
than the way other groups paint theirs. So the people in Durham run big simulations. They do it very, very differently, right? And we all sort of get the same like rough properties in the end of get, they get similar looking galaxies. Okay. But um, but yeah, so we have, you know, I would say there are probably at least a dozen groups around the world running these sort of big simulations. That's the big difference between all of them for the most part is, you know, how we're doing these sort of paintings the fancy word for this is subgrid models. Um, so effectively, you know, we're, we're modeling things that below the pixel that we can actually resolve below our grid mm. scale, effectively. And so, you know, this is this is what we all gather around in conferences and yell at each other about and go, "Ah, oh, you're way stupid." And I was like, "No, you're way stupid." And then we all go out and have beers and have a good time. <laughs> so, you know, this is um, this is kind of like what we all sort of are thinking about, and we're all trying to. And the idea is, of course, that okay. You know, maybe we all produce things like the Milky Way pretty well. But what if we were looking something completely different? What if we were to look at galaxies 12 billion years ago, right? Would our models be exactly the same? And the answer is no, because of course, you know, we, we, we made everything work today, but 12 billion years ago, our models are quite different. So now, of course, we got something like the James Webb Space Telescope is gonna is fly is flying now and is is gonna like actually detect galaxies 12, 13 billion years ago and beyond, right? And so now we can like actually we're all excited because like oh, who's right, right? Here's all our predictions, right? <laughs> who's right, right? We're gonna find out. So we start out using that, and then you know we have other things we can like worry about and debate and like you know. So it just keeps going. It's sort of this iterative process where we where we're all sort of working in a community, and it's really fun because I mean we're all working on the same big question, but we're working it from su- such different ways that everybody is sort of like you know whatever you're doing, even if you're you're sort of addressing the same science question as the person next to you, you're doing it in a sufficiently different way that both of your stuff is interesting, and you're like oh that's cool, and they're like oh yeah that's cool, right? And so there isn't, there's just less of a sense of, I guess, competition or like, you know, bad sort of feeling, right? All We're very big on open source. Like you, yourself, if with a little bit of Linux experience, could go download the very same codes that we use to run our simulations and you could run simulations yourself. They're all publicly available. We have huge like analysis tools and everything. Everything is open completely to the public. Amazing. And so... Anybody can go do this if they want, right? Uh, a number of groups have done this, and um, and so so most of our stuff is is all public, and and we do that, right? We actually, I run simulation that our latest generation is called Simba, and you know Simba has a server here at the University of Edinburgh, and anyone can go to that server and download all our all our snapshots and galaxy catalogs and all these other things. You can make the cosmic web yourself in the box, you know. All the tools that we have and stuff like that so it's it's all it's all there right and um yeah it's it's very much a a, a sort of it feels like you know uh, a community endeavor right and uh, uh it's sort mm. of like we're all sort of trying to get at the same questions but uh but you know we all sort of value each other's input we just last month we got um you know some faculty uh in estonia who who just who <laughs> hit us up and said, oh, we saw we saw your simulations, you know, uh, can we use them for this project? And we're like, yeah, sure, right? And I, I didn't even know there was any astronomers in Estonia, right? That's great, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, this kind of thing is is really fun, uh, you know, and you get to meet people around the world and, and uh, talk to them, you know, at least virtually, if not in person. Hopefully more in person now. <laughs> 
so everything sounded very positive and there's great chat within the community but have you ever had an argument with someone who doesn't believe in the big bang so you do you do run into some people uh, there was there was a I think a person at uh, at Durham who was also very famous for some time as being a very contrarian to uh, Big Bang and, and dark matter and stuff. But even to this day, I would say dark matter is I would say is more of a lightning rod uh, that that a lot of people sort of you know really um, are still still working on alternatives to that and trying to see if they can get rid of dark matter somehow and still explain everything. But it's getting harder and harder because like every time we add a piece of evidence in the universe, it always like supports dark matter. And just like, oh, this is boring. Now. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> confirmed it again. Yeah, we like it. Like things, yeah, we like it when things don't work. Right. Then things are exciting. Right. There's uh, something new to discover. You know, if it's just the same old, same old, it's like, oh, OK, we got that. Uh, and what kind of things do people say to you about alternative universes? Because you're obviously modeling oh, we've changed this small thing, this small thing. It sounds like it leads to the question of, do you think there are other right. universes Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a super interesting question. I, I wish I was smart enough to work on stuff like this. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, we, we uh, you know, it, yeah, it, I've sort of been reading up a little bit on like the simulation hypothesis, you know, the, the, do we live in a simulation, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and maybe there are other <laughs> simulations that are other universes and stuff like this. And it's, it's cute, you know, it's not like, it's, it's, it, it seems like so completely crazy. And of course there's no evidence for it, uh, but there's no, it's not, it's not yeah. obvious that there's any evidence against it. Right. Like, you know, hmm. right? So I mean, we just don't know. Right. And, and so it's, it's, I would say, you know, things like alternate universes and multiverses and stuff. You hear about this stuff all the time and it's, it's great. I love to talk about it, but uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't, I would say it doesn't probably factor into the work so much just because it's like, it's, there's no evidence to like say one way or the other. So like, what are we supposed to do with that? Right. If you can't test your hypothesis, how are you doing science? So that's, that's fun, but it is, but it is cool to think about for sure. And I, I personally think like, you know, the big bang model you know, does not tell us where the Big Bang came from, right? The Big Bang model only says we assume that it starts in this very hot, dense, you know, compact state. And then we see what happens from there. But no one says any, it doesn't say anything about like how that state got there in the first place, right? And so, um, so yeah, like how did it get there, right? Was was there some other bigger universe that it was, this is just a part of, right? That we just like spawned out of it or um, you know, or is this like one of many universes that gets spawned with different sort of things? I don't know what would be different about it, right? So yeah, there there are you know there are some some interesting arguments. I mean, um, one of the people here um, is sort of working on this idea of, of um, anthropic uh, arguments. So that's basically that our universe is the way it is because we're here in some sense, in the sense that if our universe was much different it wouldn't have made humans like suppose for instance, dark energy was instead of being 70% was like 99.99%. Then the acceleration would be so fast that like, we wouldn't have any, we wouldn't be able to collapse things into galaxies or stars. Right. We wouldn't have, oh, we would have okay. never existed. We couldn't have existed around a place like the sun. So, you know, there are, there are some reasonable arguments for this, right. That like, the, you know, the fact that we see dark energy have this and dark matter have this and all and so forth, um, you know, is it couldn't have been, you know, completely different, you know, 
Otherwise, you know, maybe maybe the things that that we know and love you know, wouldn't wouldn't be around anymore. It could never have formed, right? So, it's not a scientifically very satisfying argument because it's kind of like saying, "Oh, the universe is you know just made for us," you know, but uh, but it's logically it's self consistent, right? So it's, a, it's an interesting argument. Speaking of the things we love, are there any works of fiction, so books, TVs, movies that you think really well represent or really badly misrepresent? things that you look at oh that's a good question yeah we're we're sort of we're not so much in the public eye yet which is an unfortunate thing we're trying to change that you know we're uh, i'm actually writing a book i just i'm I'm in the process of like finishing a a popular book on this stuff so so that's hopefully going to be out maybe later this year maybe next year or something like this so Amazing, because I was going to say, your Twitter bio also lists you as an aspiring author. So. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. <laughs> can, you, can you talk any more about that, or is that still on the no, download it's, now? No, it's completely fine. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, um, it's, the title is Simulating the Cosmos, so that's kind of self-explanatory, right? And uh, I think it goes through a lot of the stuff, you know, some of the stuff that even we talked about now, like, uh, like um, you know, this this cosmic web and where that comes from and these sorts of things, but also, like, like how these simulations work and how is it we actually, you know, what does it mean when we say, oh, we put physics into a computer? Like, how do you do that actually, yeah. right? Like, what's where do you get that stuff? And then also talking about like all the super cool results we've learned. I mean, Cosmic Web is just one example, but there's a ton of other stuff that we've learned from these simulations. And, um, and uh, so, you know, um, uh, I think all of these things are really sort of, um, haven't really been brought into the public light in, in part because like this is all really in the last five or 10 years. And so, um, you know, it's, it's still very new and still very debated, but you know, what the heck we're probably onto something close to right. So, so yeah, I think it's really interesting to try to summarize where we're at as sort of a very general public level. Um, now that we are producing simulations that actually are like not bad facsimiles of, of the real universe. So, uh, so it's it's nice. It's a it's it is kind of a watershed kind of thing that's happened in the last five years uh, that that we just couldn't do before. We just didn't have all the pieces right. That sounds great. So, and if things do change, of course, you're right there, ready to do a sequel. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'll, uh, yeah, wait for the wait for the film rights. Yeah. So uh, something else I noticed in my research is that uh, in your free time last year, you performed in William Shakespeare's Indeed. Tragical Indeed, History of right. Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> has theater played a big part in your life or was this a, a step into the unknown no it's so i i did quite a lot of theater uh in 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 at university um in through grad school and things like this um and then of course it kind of dropped off because i kept moving around and it's hard to kind of and then i had you know family and daughters and stuff like this so it's kind of like yeah it got really hard but now that i'm back i'm in edinburgh i've been sort of doing stuff again so i've done that i've actually done a a fair number of other shows as well um but yeah it was a close call i would say like first couple of years of grad school i was like you know i was not sure whether i was going to keep going with this grad school thing or my my theater instructors were like you know you're really good you should really try (laughs) think about like (laughs) i'm like there's one thing that has even less job security than 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 astrophysics and probably be a a theater but i i like i like having something that is so removed from the way i think about 
astrophysics, right? It's, it's just a completely different way of thinking. It's a completely different mindset when you're doing theater, right? Of what, what is important and what you're trying to do. And I find that really challenging and interesting to sort of shift and like do something totally different with my brain and, and my body and all that sort of thing. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Romil as he covered some fascinating concepts and explained just how much the detail of the theoretical universes is changing. I loved hearing about how he's followed his passions for learning, location and hobbies. More than an academic, he also nearly became an actor and will be sure to look out for his next production. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USCI Chief Editor Apple Chu and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama by Kevin McLeod and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science.